Should we leave it at that? <laughs> yes, let's leave it at just insulting a moon. Honest Andy's Discount Moon Show! Hello and welcome to Honest Andy's Discount Moon Show. My name is Andy, a self-appointed moon expert, and I'm doing the show with my co-host Rick, who is the moon everyman. How are you doing, Rick? I'm all right, yes. I am fine. I'm locked down as ever. I'm in my office, which is gradually, as it's facing south, gradually heating up. So uh, heat exhaustion all round. How are you? (laughs) Uh, Yes, I too am heating up quite... Uh, quite a lot. It's the end of May, the 31st of May, by the way, if you want to know when this was recorded. And it is quite warm outside, but because I live in a converted Victorian warehouse, um, Gloucester Ducks. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know where you live because I've, I've been there, but yeah, it just, if you if you don't know it, it is actually residential accommodation. It's not like this warehouse has been shut and it's full of Victorian knickknacks of like monocles <laughs> and penny farthings, and Andy's just taken up residence in the corner. Yeah, I live in um, a converted warehouse on Gloucester Docks, and the walls are very thick. And I've had to close the windows because there are people outside having picnics and there are seagulls everywhere and these seagulls are very loud so they'll probably actually be picked up on this mic when people start feeding these idiot seagulls and they start screeching for food yeah how how is it is everyone because tomorrow you're allowed to uh, congregate in groups of no more than six i, I assume everyone outside is um, congregating in only household groups they're social distancing as if they're in a, in a conga line. No one's taking any notice. Everyone is just grouped together and no one really cares anymore. I think I've, I've heard this multiple times that the excuse is, well, Dominic Cummings did it so I can do it. Yeah, that, that does seem to be the, the thread at the moment. Um, I, think, I think as a science podcast, we should say um, scientifically follow advice. Yes, yeah, scientifically, behavioural um, psychology does says, well, if everyone else is doing it, I'm going to do it as well. Yeah, because otherwise you just feel like a mug for following the rules. It's like, well, if, if they're breaking the rules, well, why am I sticking to them if everyone else is breaking them? I, I must say, I, I did end up with an angry letter to my MP uh, this this month. Angry email. Many, many, in fact. Stating... Stating uh, various things, but I was generally not happy with the uh, yes, the behaviour of uh, said Dominic Cummings, particularly as yes, he, he sort of makes us all look like fools for following the government advice, which is not a good idea because the the fundamental control mechanism of this virus is everyone follows government advice. That that's like the main thing, the main card they're playing. So if they, it's it's like saying, well, I've got this really powerful trump card in my deck. I'm just going to burn it. It's like okay, yeah, but you're not going to win the game of cards if you if you're not playing that one sort of thing because you haven't got your vaccines ready yet. You haven't got test and trace ready yet. You haven't got you know what other cards do you have <laughs> sort of thing. Uh, exactly, and considering that the response to it seems to be along the lines of, ah, move on, doesn't matter, move on. Yeah, that, that was it as well. Uh, so I think the first one, yeah, first email was along the lines of, this is very bad. And then the next email was like, like seriously? You're, you're telling uh, like everyone just to move on? I don't think it works like that. Perhaps if you had a very good excuse, or 
you were, were winning against coronavirus. So like New Zealand have, what, 22 deaths? So they're a maritime nation. Uh, they just sealed the borders and locked everyone down very quickly, got on top of it. And yeah, they had, literally had 22 deaths. And I think they can just name all the people with coronavirus. I mean, they, they don't. I don't think they go on national news and say these are the people with coronavirus. But it's to that level, whereas I think we were on 8,000 deaths a day. Well, Rick, they were a maritime nation. You know, they could do this. The British Isles, we're not a maritime nation at all. We can't do this. No, no, not at all. I mean, it's that border with um, Southern Ireland. All, obviously, all the corona is um, coming in on the EU passports via uh, <laughs> Southern Ireland. There's, there's no other explanation. But th- that was the thing. So, yeah, in, in true science, we've got two sort of experiments, as you were, or two sort of similar aspects or, or conditions, i.e. two maritime nations that are islands of... Similar geographical size, I appreciate New Zealand's a population of 5 million and we're 65 million or something like that. But the the difference in actual death rate is substantial in my view. So you can't, if it was the other way around, then yes, I think there'd be some acceptance of, yeah, move on, we're doing well. It's like, okay, fine. But it's not, It's it, I think we've got like the highest in Europe or something. So really, as a population and journalists on our behalf are allowed to ask such questions and uh, yeah not be told to move on just checking this for you we do have the highest death rate in europe although the bbc did publish a headline the other day saying italy now the country with the highest death rate in the eu it was like uh, okay uh, okay you're twisting the knife now yeah that that's uh, <laughs> yes the, all the eu's um less than us um uh, especially what in two months after we've left it. Yep. What well, we officially left in January or February or something, and then suddenly we're the worst uh, country, which is, um, yeah, well done, Britain. <laughs> I can see why the government's approach is move on, uh, to be honest. Now, I've talked talk myself into, yeah, you've, you've really got sort of no excuse on this one. But, yeah, it gets sort of worse because it depends how you cut and change it because you can have raw death, sort of raw number of deaths, um, but that would be unfair because 10,000 deaths in America which is very populous, that's not as serious as, say, 10,000 ve- deaths in Vatican City, which would just be... <laughs> like, so, so, they've had to... Import people. They've had to massively increase the population and then infect them. Yeah, just to say that Vatican City doesn't have that amount, but I, I do think, you know, as a science podcast, we do sort of say, well, actually, in fairness, you have to do per capita, and they're doing per million. And then the other thing you have to do with statistics is do excess deaths, where you say, well, this is the number of people that would die anyway, and this is the excess above it with coronavirus. Uh, That makes the statistics more fair. But regardless of how you chop and change it, broadly, Britain's sort of doing the worst. In Europe, sorry, of Western developed nations. Uh, America is doing the worst. Uh, Um... I think they're actually uh, less if you do it per capita because they've just got so many people. Deaths per per million, it's 319 for America and 566 for the UK. So we're winning on that front, as it were. As (laughs) as in we've got the worst. Yeah, sorry. We've got a higher death rate. So I think the US will overtake Britain um, in the long run because they've got people sort of not social distancing by protesting against the lockdown in itself and also there's the George Floyd riots um, which are also bringing 
lots of people out onto the streets in a non-social distancing manner. I have seen photos of people protesting with the masks on and like with hand sanitizer everywhere. That said though, they are still within the two meters that they recommend. And I have also seen a lot of people without masks on, but yeah. <laughs> I, I have also seen these people furious and being very passionate and angry and rightly so. Like the few news articles I've started to have dipped into, the few speeches I've seen, uh, it's everyone is so, so angry. And I, I don't know enough about the situation to make an informed comment. I just completely understand why they are out there with the masks and protesting because of how angry they are. I've, if I felt that angry, I probably would be to hell with this social distancing. I, I have to say what I have to say, whether it's right or, right or not. Anger kind of clouds your judgment. Uh, yes, yes, certainly. I'm personally more amenable to join the protests um, with regards to the George Floyd aspect and general sort of Black Lives Matter. Would I'm not going to comment too much on the politics of it, just beyond the science of that. That's one of the reasons I think the um, the ultimately the death rate, sadly, in the US will be higher than in the UK. I I sadly agree with you. Shall we move on to something that's not coronavirus? Yes, something, something to do with the moon, perhaps. I, I just w would say, though, that uh, when your, your email comes in, you go, oh, yeah, it's time for another moon thing. It's like, oh, this is a you know, piece of calm in the, uh, in the otherwise turbulent world. Yes, so exactly. I was, I was, looking, I was um, looking out at the moon, just silently sort of drifting past in the sky, you know, and it was uh, uh, very, very good in in uh, in this turbulent times, just to have a, a beacon of stability, i.e., the moon. So I hope the first article isn't it blown up or it's going to attack us or anything. <laughs> well, the first bit I was going to actually talk about a little bit of feedback from the last episode where we mentioned about developing about a moon mission board game where you were where you were collaborative and you each made different bits of the rockets that got you to the moon yeah um i did actually sit down to do that i thought you know what i've talked myself into it i'm going to sit down i ended up, i've got this book of board game ideas so i started rolling dice and stuff oh i've got a, a board game development kit as well that i i've built up with tokens and counters and cards and stuff okay um so I started like playing around with it and said, oh, how this would work. Basically, I ended up progressing all my other board game ideas apart from the moon one. Oh. So, <laughs> so um, <laughs> sorry about that, but uh, may, maybe this, whatever this feedback will, will help progress the moon one. And uh, yeah, maybe over like a period, it could be a new feature of how is the moon board game going. Yeah, uh, it could every, do. Every month a, new, a listener adds an idea. Well, uh, this suggestion comes from Davith, and it's based on reality, because during the... pointed out that it was either during the Korolev era or the Bur Buran era of the Soviet space missions, when the government was saying, you have to get this done by a certain day, uh, the scientists would say, there will be heart attacks. So you could, uh, you could build that factor into the game as in, like, a burnout factor or, like, mental health of the... Uh, scientists, or in this case, it could well be physical stamina of the scientists. <laughs> okay, yeah, that sounds great. Um, so, so far in the game, we've got the concept of a rocket going to the moon and heart attack cards. <laughs> yeah, but that could just be <laughs> the rest of work is out. Yeah, no, no, that's fine. That's that's further than I've got so far. So, yep, 
I'll, I'll put that into the game. We don't have to put it in the game, but you can have it as... No, we do now. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely in the game. We've just got to work the rest of it around it. So, yeah, we now know there will be engineers uh, who can have heart attacks. Uh, just, just on the board game theory side of it, it sounds like what's called a push-your-luck mechanic, where you... Um, you keep sort of pushing your light. You say, oh, okay, I could stick at this value or I could go for a higher value, but it causes a, a big punishment if, if the luck doesn't go my way. So, yeah, I think, you know, having a push your luck mechanic of heart attacks. Yeah, how many heart attacks do you want to risk? Uh, I think that sounds great. Uh, that's in the game now. Okay, good. We'll figure out how to actually implement it, whether it's a case if you have heart attack cards or it affects the dice roll. It's like the, um, what was your uh, favourite game? Dead of Winter, isn't it? Where you have a sort of zombie push your, do you want to search more? Uh, and that's a push your luck thing. So the more you search, the more you get, but you can end up just getting a zombie bite and killing everyone. Yeah, that did happen on one of our games. It was like the last round as well. We were so close to winning. Yeah, well, we, we've got like, you know, however long the podcast goes on for. So even <laughs> even if like it's six years later, we've got loads of mechanics and uh, as in ideas for the game. Uh, and it's still not gelled together. Uh, in fact, that, it's, it's an incentive to get the game done quicker, otherwise people keep adding more and more stuff, making it impossible to finish. <laughs> so it'll be, okay, we've got the heart attack cards, but unless the, unless the scientists are from America, they can't actually afford the healthcare to look after themselves. Whereas if the scientists are British, they have the NHS, but the waiting lists are too long for them to actually get the thing. Oh God, we've missed the launch date. And if you're in Russia, you get a rusty knife and told to cut your own heart open and sort it out yourself. But you get vodka tokens. See, oh, it, it writes itself, this game, I tell you. <laughs> Good, so then you don't have to write it. Yeah, that's it, right, sorted. Uh, a heart attack mechanic of a sort of push-your-luck nature, that's in the game. Brilliant. So, there's quite a bit of moon news this episode. Uh, I don't know how much we'll make it into the final cut or how much we'll actually be able to talk about it. Uh, so the first item I'd like to talk about is is uh, ESA, Europe's version of NASA. Well, ESA have announced an Ariane 64 rocket, which is going to go backwards and forwards between the moon, so on a return mission in 2030. That's when it's roughly planned. So this has been in the pipeline for a while. But what they actually announced this month is they are inviting uh, people to come up with mission ideas. So if you're a private company and are developing some kind of idea for a lunar rover or a lunar probe, whatever, something to do on the moon, but you're not quite sure how to get there, ESA's pretty much saying, hey, we'll get you there. Give us some ideas of what you're going to do when you're there. Oh, that's brilliant. Um, can I start? Uh, I mean, do, do you have a company and a product of what you'd like to do on the moon? I can go to Argos and get a remote control car. Yeah. Um, stick a GoPro on it. Okay. And drive it round. Okay. I'm pretty sure someone's already doing that in the form of <laughs> Yutu 2 and the Chinese uh, uh, government. Uh, you're right, yeah. I should pay more attention to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I think they're after new ideas. Uh, for example, this would be a good opportunity for Spacebit and their poorly named robot, Name Walking Rover. They still haven't got back to me about some of the name suggestions, so I'm going to keep prodding them, say like, hey, you could actually go to the moon now because ESA's after some candidate things. And they actually cite their mission idea because they say, you know, one of the ideas we've heard of is exploring the lunar lava caves, which is what 
Space Bits walking rover was kind of designed to do because it's got a little crab-like thing. It can easily go over the rocky, weird terrain that might be in these lava tubes. So they actually basically give them a shout out in the form of their mission idea. So I'm going to try and connect the two on Twitter and say, by the way, call it this. Right, yeah. Well, Your name yeah. sucks, call it this. <laughs> that, that's good. Um, so basically, it, when you say a mission... It has to be a lunar lander type mission. So it has to be a thing that wanders around the moon, or can it be an orbiter, for example? Probably not an orbiter. It'd have to be something that physically goes on the surface, because orbiters, that's a whole other bit of astrodynamics. You need to be able to put it at the right orbit so it doesn't drift away from the moon or crash into the moon. It needs to be able to navigate itself, and also it's the chances of this are slim, but it also needs to not collide with other things that are currently orbiting the moon, like the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, for example. Okay, so it's a case of, right, you've got a robot and it's going around the moon, what does it do? That's that's kind of the mission, I'm guessing. Or that, that's the mission ideas. What What is your thing going to do? Well, let me read you the exact quote. We are asking the best minds to submit ideas for this program as we explore our solar system in collaboration with scientists, engineers, industry and companies. We really want to extend this call for ideas outside the realm of usual space players, considering all aspects of lunar exploration. But I think it will just be actually going to the surface, rather than the orbiters, as you suggested. So actually, it doesn't have to be a thing that wanders around. Could you sort of ask for, I want a beacon that goes blip, or, or something like a retro reflector that just sits there? Would they do them? They're, they're after new things. There's already yeah. a plate on the moon that is used to reflect things. There's already like little rovers and explorers. I think they're after new things. So, for example, a better thing that hasn't been done before would be a drill that goes down to like a really deep depth. And if you could create a, a robot that lands on the moon and probes it to, I don't know, several dozens of metres down, because I think we've only gone like less than a dozen metres, if you were able to come up with some very, very smart probe that could penetrate that far down. I mean, they've done it with radar, but they haven't done it physically. Okay, right, I'll, I'll get thinking. There is a link of how to apply here, so I can send you that if you wish. Okay, well, I didn't get far with the um, Hubble Space Telescope looking at my roof, so um, I'm a bit uh, disenfranchised with these space companies saying they'll help you and they don't. Well, I think you also need to apply. Well, yeah, <laughs> there is that. They, could, they should listen to the podcast. But yeah, they should. So have you got like a top five ideas that um, if, if you were given sort of infinite budget or a reasonable budget, what would you do with, with access to the moon? That is a good question. Uh, so far, I don't have like my own ideas, but from some of the other ideas I've read, I thought that is a good idea. Like putting up the radar telescope on the far side of the moon to be able to pick up the distant radio waves that are going through the solar system. Uh, I think it'd be good to have some kind of like, kind of like a webcam on the moon. So, you know, you could get those cameras on ski slopes and it'd be like, oh, is, is it snowy up there? And it just yeah. looks up the slope. Oh yes, it's snowy, we'll go up today. It'd be good to have one of those, but pointed at a certain bit of the, the sky or maybe one telescope per planet and anyone could dial in to these cameras and have a look at 
the planets, so always have these telescopes trained on certain objects of the solar system if they're in view, that kind of thing. Oh, that sounds good. But that would require a permanent power source on the moon, which isn't available. And I think all this stuff is a case of it has to go there, it has to not pollute the surface, and it has to actually give some scientific data and be temporary. So these little walking rovers, they'll probably only be there for a week or two before they run out of battery. But they're not going to be running around the surface for absolutely ages like a U-22 is. Right, I will, I'll have a think. Excellent. Well, yeah, have a think and apply something. Um, just taking a high-level view of this, to me, this sounded like ESA have invented a sort of courier company or a, we've got a rocket that will take things backwards and forwards. We don't know what we're taking yet, but we think strategically it would be great to have a mechanism to take things backwards and forwards. We'll invest in that. Can anyone think of what you want to take backwards and forwards to the moon because strategically we know the moon is going to want things or people will want to go and get things to the moon so if we are the first people to sort of set up a courier service to the moon then we're in a strategic position that's what i read into this uh, is that fair or not i think calling it a business might be the wrong word a service for sure a service with science in mind for example, you do have rocket companies in America. There's one in LA, I forget the name of it. And they're, uh, they're basically saying, all right, give us five million and we'll put a small payload into low Earth orbit. So if you're like a satellite company, be like, right, we need this satellite up in space for our own sat-nav purposes. We're sick of relying on other networks. We're gonna make our own network. Here are the satellites, we just need to get them into space. Oh this company will do it for quite cheap. So off you go, slap it on the rocket and it goes up. I think a <laughs> courier and business are probably loaded words. They will probably charge private companies to use their service, but I think science will be, will be the main purpose of this. Like, oh, here is a scientific service we are providing. We, will, we have opened the route between Earth and the moon. They're not gonna be like Virgin Galactic and say like, there's first class and second class. So, just two things there. So, yeah, firstly, it sounds like Royal Mail, when that started, it's kind of a Britain sort of said, yeah, we want letters to go from A to B and everyone just pays the same or whatever it is. So it's setting up that infrastructure to get things from A to B. Obviously, obviously Royal Mail had loads of endpoints being like every house in the country, whereas A and B between Earth and Moon are pretty fixed. Um <laughs> Uh, and also, just I do like the idea of first and second class with lunar rovers. Uh, I can imagine some of the uh, you know more affluent lunar rover projects, all these lunar rovers sitting in first class, being able to stretch their legs out, whereas the the, the less affluent <laughs> nations have to have their lunar rovers sort of have retractable legs and pull it back into their box because they've been uh, put in very cramped seating. <laughs> also, it, it wouldn't work very well, would it? First and second class mail still goes in the same van to the same destination. Yeah. Well, you could um, you have a thing at the end where the first class lunar rovers are allowed out first and you kind of... And they get a hot towel. Yeah. Um, and then as the, the second class ones, they might go out you might end up not counting them out and they end up coming back to Earth and getting lost in the post. Or we tried to deliver your lunar rover, but we failed. We'll try again in five <laughs> five days. Or you weren't in on the moon, therefore <laughs> yeah. we couldn't deliver your robot. Yeah, that's it. No one signed for it. You had to send up a signing robot first to sign for it. <laughs> 
right, we'll send up the signing robot first, but we can only afford second class. Yeah. <laughs> so then it's just backwards <laughs> and forwards forever. You'll have read the show notes by now, and you'll have seen an article about peeing on the moon. I did, yes. Good luck if you can hit it, that's what I say. <laughs> um, the article is about using elements within urine to help build some of the lunar structures. So taking the urea part of urine, mixing it with some lunar regolith, and making a solid structure, making like a lunar crete, which is concrete made of lunar regolith, but also mixed with pea in this case. So lunar peacrete? Yeah, I'm kind of imagining like a builder on the moon with a cement mixer. He digs a hole, or he puts his spade in, digs up some regolith, throws that in the cement mixer, and then pees into the cement mixer. Am I a million miles off? Um... So you know you had the phrase, in the right ballpark? <laughs> yes. I'm going to say, in the right solar system in this case. Uh, yes, I th the, the long and short of it, yeah. You, you take some components from urine, and then you will mix them with very select uh, geopolymers, that I believe they're called. Because making cement requires a lot of energy, you know, it's quite a heavy substance, so taking that to the moon would require a lot of rocket fuel, which is precious. Uh, taking up the water is also quite heavy, and that'll cost precious fuel. So this article is basically about using what elements are there for you on the moon and being able to construct something out of what limited resources you have. Uh, this is the first time that, you know, oh, let's use urine to do stuff, because you also posted an article about someone in the National Trust. So this reminded me of a story from the National Trust where they put out some hay bales for their male workers to urinate on and this creates a sort of compost because uh, of all the nitrogen. The nitrogen in urine gets mixed up with the um, hay and then you can put it on plants and they grow well. Um, so I thought I'd post that and say, hey, look at this. But obviously they're not using it to grow vegetables, they're using it to grow brick. <laughs> <laughs> they're not peeing on the moon and then be like, right, we'll come back in two weeks and there's these perfectly formed bricks. Okay, yeah. No, no, I assume yeah. They, they are using it as part of a brick manufacturer. Or a... In fact, it did say they're not going to make bricks, they're just going to put it into a 3D printer because that's more efficient, which also had me wondering as like, you know, Hewlett-Packard going to build a massive big printer with a sort of top you take off and just pee into it instead of like <laughs> adding printer ink. So I've, I've got even more confused. How are they going to get their printer up there? Well, jo joking aside, uh, the article does make a good point of here, here is a resource that we can utilise. How are we going to utilise it? So 3D printing has always been an idea on the moon, being able to taking some just small components and be and it, it's actually going to be a hell of a lot easier to carry if you can just go onto the moon and print the tools you need it, it, it's like the tetris problem you have all these different shapes how do you fit them into one box most efficiently well if you could just take up the pure volume via liquid and then print that on the moon into the tools you need that is far more space efficient as it might not be very fuel efficient but with limited space you could make more room for fuel. 3D printing stuff on the moon has been an idea for a while. And it's like, okay, well, how can we save on the 
stuff on the printer ink in inverted <laughs> excuse me how do we save on the printer ink because printer ink is expensive well we can make it from lunar regolith we can make it from this aspect of urine we can make it from the actual ink that goes up so it wouldn't be all made of human pee it would be made of printer ink as well but this is a way of like backing it up because you know you've got humans on the moon they're going to be converting water into urine so you may as well use some of that resource that is available to you okay yeah that, that sounds uh, more plausible. Won't they run out of water? Yes. So I thought, yeah, so on the International Space Station, they recycle their urine and get some water back. But ultimately, if you keep turning urine into building blocks, then um, you, you run out of water. It's the urea part of the urine. So you still have water left over. Oh, cool. So it's taking one aspect out of it, but you would still have a depleting depletion of it over time. This isn't self-sustaining. You still need more water going into the system. And as we have discussed before, there is water on the moon, but it's in, for in the form of ice, which is in the craters. And that's a quite hard to get to at the moment. Uh, the other thing I noticed about this is... It seems quite fortuitous that if you're on the moon, you are pretty much in the direct line of sight of the radiation of the sun, which is a bad thing because it'll ionise you. Uh, however, the concrete or lunacrete created actually blocks radiation quite well. So that seemed quite very fortuitous that if you build out of this concrete stuff, or sorry, lunacrete stuff, you've actually got a radiation-proof uh, little house. Yes, that is using the water aspect of the lunacrete because water is a good source of radiation protection. That's why you put uh, those control rods, ionized control rods, and spent fuel rods from a nuclear reactor into big pools of water. You just have all these molecules that are just blocking all the radiation coming out. You could actually swim on the surface of one of these cooling pools and be fine. It's if you got within a couple of metres of the actual rods, that's when you'd be screwed. I wouldn't recommend it. Yeah. <laughs> but you can do it. Yes. Because you used to work as a nuclear physicist or something. So my degree is in physics. I did some astrophysics modules, but I primarily did nuclear physics stuff. And then after uni, I got a job for someone called Amec Foster Wheeler, who deal with like physicist consultancies for nuclear sites. The problem is... When I joined the company, they were AMEC, and then they merged with an oil company called Foster Wheeler. And the month after they did this merger, the price of an oil barrel went from $120 all the way down to $60, $50. Well, is that because of you joining? It's like, oh, Andy's now in the oil industry. Oh, God, no. Sell. <laughs> Well, the best solution to this problem was to fire all the newbies. So uh, last in, first out. So they got rid of a load of the graduates, uh, one of which being me. Oh, uh, but thankfully I found another job, uh, so it wasn't too bad. That's good. So was your consultancy, you're all right to swim in that pool you are, um, just don't go to the bottom? Uh, no, that wasn't one of them. That's just something I read from... Uh, from the ex-KCD guy, Randall Munro. Yeah, I've heard that actually said as well by someone who works in a, a nuclear power station, or did. He also said that when he went on a tour around it, when you sort of go into the room, you go through an airlock, uh, and you have to put both your hands across your chest and onto your shoulders in a sort of 
I don't know what that. What like Tutankhamun? Yeah, that that's it. So Tutankhamun type thing, and you have to wander around like that just to avoid the temptation to put your hand on anything, like a handrail or a. Yes, um, that 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 sounds about right. So yeah, I just imagine all these sort of ancient Egyptian people wandering around in a sort of high vis vest Tutankhamun conga line. Type well, thing. no, they they're all doing the the Z things with their hands because that's how Egyptians walk right I've learned this from yeah. Egyptian dancers and from like the Adams family and like just classic Halloween stuff that's how Egyptians and mummies walk it's all zigzags yeah absolutely if you look at the um, pyramids of Giza on the hieroglyphics there's there's someone swimming at the top of the water and there's a big tick next to it and someone <laughs> swimming at the bottom and a big cross and a skull and right next to a sign saying no heavy petting yes <laughs> <laughs> so I've got some foreign moon news for you now quite a few uh, elements of foreign moon news where we talk about moons of the solar system that are not our own moon and one of the stories is an astronomer uh, so I think I'm pronouncing his name right Konstantin Batigin Batigin uh, I'm sorry if I'm butchering that he has come up with uh, a new theory for where the Galilean moons of Jupiter come from. The Galilean moons being Io, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto, the four biggest moons, some of which are bigger than planets. Ganymede and Callisto, for example, I believe are bigger than Mercury. And they've come up with a new theory of where they come from. I say new theory, it's quite similar to the current theory, but just adapted differently and has some actual timestamps on it. What's the current theory? So the current theory is that the four Galilean moons formed at the same time as Jupiter, from the same disk. So solar system formed from a huge cloud of dust and elements that uh, started to heat up in the centre. As it started to heat up, the cloud collapsed into a disk, started to orbit around the centre. As the sun was forming, this blasted out loads of solar winds. And during the time of the sun being formed, planets were forming at various distances from the sun, the young sun in the middle. One of these planets was Jupiter. And as it was forming, it was forming moons around it as well from this cloud of dust. So each one of these planets as they were forming had their own circumplanetary disks. And from this disk of dust formed the moons that we know today. Some of these moons were captured from asteroids and whatnot that, that were flying by the planets, but some of which, like in the case of Jupiter, are the Galilean moons, like in the case of Saturn would be Titan and Enceladus. These formed at the same time as the planets were forming, or roughly in that era of the solar system. So the planet will have formed first, but shortly afterwards these moons would have formed at the same time. So this new theory suggests that while Jupiter was forming, the stuff that was left over, but still in the disk around Jupiter, formed into what can be called as like icebergs, like these icy hail, almost huge clumps of hail and ice. And there were thousands of them, maybe even millions, and they were called satellite essibles, because moons are often referred to as natural satellites. So these all formed these orbits, creating a disk. And because there were so many of them, uh, the simulation actually makes it look like Saturn. I'll post um, 
I'll post links to the videos in the in the show notes. Yeah, I would say at this point, um, I read this article and I kind of got what was going on, and then I looked at the video and it's like, oh yeah, that's a lot simpler. So, yeah, <laughs> so I would say just, exactly uh, as, as lovely as the explanation is. Uh, if you're thinking this is this is complex and so on, you just, just go and watch the video and you go, ah, right, yeah. However, in a non-visual manner, uh, as is as is the way with this podcast, uh, I'll let you continue, Andy, with your explanation. But I don't want anyone to switch off and think this is um, unduly sort of um, beyond them. Uh, it's just incredibly difficult to explain with um, no visual references. Yeah, well... It, it, it follows the same theory, but instead of, like, with these satellite decimals, uh, these bigger bodies, the bigger moons, the Galilean moons, coalesced from them. And by coalesced, I mean, like, stuck together under their own gravity, and as they got bigger, they attracted more, and they snowballed into the bigger moons. This is a normal method for how moons are formed, but this new theory puts a nice little timeline on it. So, out of the hundreds of thousands of satellite decimals that are surrounding Jupiter... Towards the inside of this disk, almost, a moon started to form, and this was Io. And as it got bigger and started to form a nice sphere out of just all of these small satellites packing in together and coalescing into this bigger body, this created, like, a wake. So if you uh, imagine a, a ship going through the water, it has a wake behind it. Well, it's doing awake as this big body is going through a sea of like dusty little icy moons so this cleared kind of like a gap and formed a very stable orbit for this moon of io and then shortly after that the next moon out europa got into a nice orbit as well so it's got two moons within six thousand years and then after that the other moons followed suit and then there's some other aspects to the theory, which I could go into if you want, but I think it's better to uh, watch the video and read the article. But it puts timelines on when these moons were created and finally formed. So you have Io and Europa for forming within 6,000 years, and then Ganymede took 30,000 years to complete its form after that. And then the last of the Galilean moons, Callisto, it reached half of its mass at about 50,000 years. But because at that point, the sun was past, I think it's T-Tauri phase, when it's like kicking out so much solar wind, it had stopped doing that at this point, and it was in the next stage of its main sequence. And it took 9 million years for Callisto to finally accumulate the rest of its surface. And I think that ties in with how the sun formed, because at that point, the sun had stopped blasting out lots of solar wind. And it was it just like gave Callisto a chance to form. I think that's what the theory is talking about. This theory is slightly new compared to the current theory, and also puts timelines on it. So that's why I think it's worth talking about. And when more missions go there, and are able to actually take samples from the surface, they'll be able to date it a lot easier, almost like carbon dating. Yeah, that's good. I mean, the, the big takeaway from me was it was absolutely amazing that they can give relatively accurate information or timelines as to what stuff happened when, nine million years ago, when I'm... You asked me earlier before that we were recording, it's like, what, what have you done last week? And I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so if this scientist can do a computer simulation of what I was doing last week, because every day is just blurred into one, 
uh, that would be good. And then I can get I can get back to Andy and say what I was doing last week. I mean, I'm pretty sure this is what diaries are for. Yeah, did Callisto keep a diary? Because um, then we can correlate this idea. Year 9,071, still not in existence. My younger siblings are way ahead of me. They're now in orbit. <laughs> also, didn't uh, I saw the video and it said the inner three are now in a sort of a periodic audit. Or audit? <laughs> orbit. And so, yeah, the, the outer moon is probably there going, I want to join their gang, I want to be in the same sequence. It's not fair. Yeah, the three inner moons, uh, inner Galilean moons of Io, Europa and Ganymede are in a resonance orbit so for every four orbits of io there's two of europa and one of ganymede and that is based on distance between each other but also at the way that they formed callisto was really quite far out and was at the outer edge of the disc that's probably why it took so long to form the its final shape because most of the elements were gone into making these early moons and it was just like left over with I'll just have to make do with what I've got. So that that's going to be some teenage angsty diary, that is. It's like, you know, there's four of us and three of them have formed a group and Callisto's the one on the, the edge of the group that's not in resonance, keeps gaining weight. Despite living off leftovers. Yeah, lives off leftovers, a bit slower than the rest of them, you know. That's not going to be a nice sort of diary to read. That's, that's going to be angsty. Out of the Galilean moons, Callisto is probably one of the least interesting... Oh, don't rub salt in the wounds there, Andy. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) Callisto might be listening. (laughs) Io is covered in volcanoes. Europa has uh, subsurface oceans and has a solid chance of life being on there because of the perfect conditions for it, so it could have life on it. Ganymede is the largest moon in the solar system and has a really interesting surface as well. Callisto, the only thing it's got going for it is it has the oldest undisturbed surface. And by oldest, I mean it's covered in the most craters. So it's acne-riddled Callisto. (laughs) It just gets worse and worse. Sorry, Callisto. Sorry, Callisto. You're great. Before the show, when I was compiling the show notes the other day, I asked on Twitter if anyone had any stories they'd like us to talk about. And someone sent me a video of the rover that they're planning on sending to Phobos. Uh, I'm not sure if you actually looked at it in the show notes. I have. Yeah, it was described as a microwave with wheels. Yes, it does look like a microwave with wheels. Uh, So we've spoken a bit about the return mission that JAXA is going to be doing to Phobos, uh, but I didn't realise that they were actually planning a rover. I think that this was announced uh, a few months ago, but the actual videos were released on Twitter fairly recently. And uh, CNES, which is a French uh, space exploration company, are teaming up with ESA. And uh, I think they're teaming up with DLR, which are German spa- a German space agency as well. Uh, as opposed to Docklands Light Railway. Not that one. What? DLR. Are, um, also Docklands Light Railway. So it's like uh, a small sort of railway that goes around London. Oh, I, I don't know. God, this is something that always frustrates me. My wife grew up near London, spent a lot of time in London, and so she'll make all these jokes about like the Northern Line or Overhead Rail or TfL or something like that. And because I grew up in the middle of nowhere... Uh, I'm just lucky to see a bus, let alone catch the bus where I grew up. So all these jokes, all these London-centric jokes kind of like get them under my skin a little. Okay. 
Oh, you can cut it out. No, no. Doctrine's Light Railway, though, is hilarious. You've got to go on it. It's just... Why? Why is it funny? Oh, just everyone's so happy on it. You know, just like the whole underground system. Everyone's just giggling as soon as they get on it and smiling at each other. Life's great when you're on the underground and the overground railways. (laughs) Yes, if, if there's one thing I have learned from my few visits to London is that everyone on the tube is happy and understanding of people who are not familiar with the tube. Oh yes, yes. Heaven forbid you should stand in the wrong place on an escalator that's three before you want to get off and therefore you have a suboptimal journey because, you know... you Every s- microsecond counts yeah. in the precious capital, yeah. the greatest city on earth. Yeah. My, my brother lived in London for a bit and he was saying, oh, you were, you're, so you're going to take three changes. That means you want to stand at this edge of the platform so you get on at that door at this one that puts you out at this exit here and that optimizes your route onto that one so you had your journey planned from where exactly you start on the first platform uh, to optimize your route through these three changes because you knew all the exits and what have you i I didn't have the heart to say look i i will just take the extra 20 seconds to walk the platform (laughs) <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not a Londoner. I will, I will survive the humiliation or the walk of shame, presumably, that the non-Londoner faces for walking just slightly more than necessary. But then again, every second counts, from what I've heard. No matter where you are in London, no matter how far you have to go, no matter how close you are to someone, it takes, on average, an hour to meet up with someone. So if you're like, okay, uh, we'll meet at the pub at this time, you have to budget an hour to get from where you are to where the destination is, no matter how close the stations are. There's the walking, there's the inevitable queues, there is the inevitable delays and all the changes. So no matter how close you are, if you live in London, it will take you an hour to of journey time to meet up with that person. Yes, yeah, I did notice that if you do live in London, you're, you're an hour away from everyone. Even if it's like, oh, you, you, you know, college friends who live in London. Oh, you're so close to each other. You're both in London. It's like, no, it takes us both an hour to travel. Uh, to put it in perspective, like I can go an hour and end up in Bristol uh, or uh, an hour and end up in Birmingham or Oxford, you know. Yeah, so I, I can meet up with any number of people. I've got friends in, say, Windsor who could travel an hour and meet up in Oxford. Being able to meet up in an hour in London is less impressive than being able to meet up in an hour outside London. Yeah, exa- exactly that. Uh, sorry for the person who sent us this story. We spent the entire time <laughs> just complaining about London travel rather than the actual Fabian rover. Anyway, going back to the Phobos rover, which is a collaboration between DLR, German service, French service, which is seen as JAXA and ESA as well. Uh, they're all lending, uh, not lending, they're all developing instruments that's going to go on this the, it's called the MMX mission, which is Martian Moons Exploration. So it's going to go to Phobos, got to go to Deimos, and it's actually going to bring back a sample from Phobos. Now, this new development, or this new announcement, is uh, a little rover that's going to land on the surface. And as, as you said before, it's about the size of a microwave, and it's on wheels, and will trundle along the surface. It looks quite similar to ha- what was meant to happen to the Beagle lander when it landed and then these solar panels opened like petals. So this box is gonna land on the surface and then the top is gonna open with these solar panels that will power it and it will then trundle along the surface. That's great. And then it will come back. I don't think the rover will come back. 
because it's not even though Phobos is tiny and doesn't have a strong gravitational field, I don't think it's going to have the fuel capacity to land on the surface and then take off from the surface and then have enough fuel left over to navigate to the actual uh, to the actual orbiter. Yeah, so the orbiter will pick up a sample and then go off, but I think they're just going to leave the rover on Phobos. Okay. And do you know what it can do? It can add to those Phobos grooves. It can make its own. <laughs> Absolutely. I was thinking that if it's a, like a microwave, I hope like at the end of the mission, it just lets out a ding sound just to let let everyone know it's finished. <laughs> and then a minute later when the door hasn't been opened, it just goes beep, 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 yeah. <laughs> passive aggressively, which my microwave does. Yes. Yeah, I, I think you've got to add that functionality. <laughs> Just beeping every minute from now until yeah. the end of time until it runs out of batteries, which it won't because it has solar, panel. uh, solar panels. Yeah, and future generations find it and say, I don't know what this is, and it's some sort of weird in-joke for the hu- <laughs> humans of uh, the 2020s. Uh, but this little rover is hopefully going to be delivered and operating on Phobos in 2026, so six years from now. Brilliant. So hopefully this podcast will still be going and we'll be able to report on its successful landing or it might follow the same path as the Beagle did and land but then not do do anything. And if we don't report on it, it will beep every minute until we do. So it's been a few episodes since we've done some very local moon news and if you're new to the podcast, Very Local Moon News is about towns on planet Earth called Moon because there's a few towns in America called Moon. For example, there's one in Kentucky, there's one in Pennsylvania, there's a very, very small one in Wisconsin. We used to try and talk about it once every episode, but a lot of the news was just quite boring or there wasn't anything really to talk about other than this house has got it for sale. Uh, So we've been waiting for things to come along to actually talk about. Recently, the last few months, there has been nothing in these local communities other than COVID panic, which is understandable because it is a pandemic after all. But I found one that's sort of related to the show, and that is Moon Kentucky (laughs) has had to bring in lots of portable restrooms to combat the demand for people gathering out in the open in public and trying to social distance and something like a public restroom is going to be a hotspot for the virus and the disease. So if we bring in these portable uh, loos, these portable hand sanitizers, that means people can go outside. So the headline was along the lines of moon portable restrooms. And obviously I clicked on that because I just read the P article. So I figured, oh, this will tie in nicely to the show. So yeah, Moon Kentucky has finally made it into the show thanks to its portable moon restrooms. Oh, well done, uh, Moon Kentucky. Do the uh, the restrooms drain into the local cement mixers? <laughs> uh, no, I think they just drain into themselves. Well, they're missing a trick there. They could make some concrete. They could make some concrete, and that would actually help the infrastructure crisis, which is due to hit America soon. There was a really good John Oliver uh, segment about that, which I'll post in the show notes. Uh, but yeah, very local moon news and moon portable restrooms. Nothing else to say about that. Bye. So, as is tradition, every episode we try to talk about uh, the full moon of the month. And as you pointed out, just when we were chatting before recording the show, this this segment's probably going to be retired within the next few episodes because we've been doing this podcast for nearly a year and we did start talking about this almost immediately. So, in theory, there's only going to be like 
12 of them available. Yeah, I mean, we are on show 12 now, so in theory, this might be the last one. Well, I had a look at when we first started, and we did first start in August. I think it's because uh, some episodes were split over two, and also I think we might have done two in one month, that kind of thing. Okay, yeah. Otherwise, we'll end up repeating the same hilarious anecdotes <laughs> we did, because <laughs> I can't remember them. But, so I'll probably just use the same jokes again. Well, I uh, I think it will probably mention it. Oh, by the way, it's this moon this month. Do you remember that? Yeah, here's the here's the Express article regurgitating what they already printed last year. I'm still tempted to write a scripting engine that just every month will generate a Daily Express moon of the month article. Well, you've got a moon board game to write first. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'll add that too. <laughs> to the list uh so yeah the next full moon in the uk is going to be on the 5th of june at exactly 12 minutes past eight and it's going to be called the strawberry moon hey hey lovely so i didn't know what the appropriate response was for a strawberry moon something to do with wimbledon i guess is that why it's named that it comes at the same time as wimbledon uh no it's named after that because Strawberries are usually harvested around this time. The The strawberry harvesting season is apparently really, really short. And so it will always fall within this period of late May, early June. So the moon around this time is the strawberry moon. Yeah, the local Pick Your Own Farm has released their um, rules for social distancing whilst you can pick your own. We were looking at that going, because you're going to get pointed to exactly where you're going to go and exactly where you can pick. You know, normally pick your own is likely, yeah, just bimble round, have fun, pick some strawberries and this. It's it's kind of probably what pick your own was like in communist China or something. <laughs> <laughs> or you mean just migrant, like migrant workers brought over, brought over to pick the strawberries. It's like, here is your quadrant, pick all the berries, move on to the next. That, that's broadly it. So it's a fun family day out of fruit-picking labour. Do not <laughs> disobey these rules. <laughs> well, to quote Monica from Friends, rules help control the fun. Yeah, that's it. I think that that's the way they're, they're going. So, uh, no, I mean, they've, they've fundamentally got no other choice because obviously having kids running around licking their hands with strawberries and then smearing into other kids' faces or whatever. It's going to be a nightmare. Uh, So, uh, yeah, it's just one of those weird juxtaposition things of, welcome to the strawberry picking. Here are the list of 50 rules you must obey. And then you can get strawberry number one. Here is the 50 centimetre leash for your child. That's it, yes. There was a sort of section on controlling your children. (laughs) We will turn a blind eye to the beatings. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Beatings are less worse than coronavirus uh, infestation. So, yeah, beatings, okay. (laughs) Uh, So some of the other names for the moon of June are the planting moon, the rose moon, the horse moon... The green corn moon, which I imagine if you're planting your corn, it might have grown by now because there was the corn planting moon a few moons ago. I forget which one. It might have been the last one or the one before. So assuming you've planted your corn, it's grown and it's now green, not quite ripe for picking like yellow. So there must be like a yellow corn moon and then a red corn moon and then a stop sign moon later on in the year as we're going through the sections of the traffic lights yeah seriously you should have picked your corn by now moon (laughs) 
Your corn is dead, moon. <laughs> the weed moon, very popular in certain states in America. Uh, one of the moons that one of the moon names that jumped out to me was Mead Moon. Uh, mead being medieval beer, and it ever tried mead. Uh, I think so. Yes, but isn't mead one of those things where it's not all sort of? It, it's like saying, "Have you tasted beer?" Well, yeah, but it depends which type. Yeah, it's exactly. Sort of mead is very sweet. Like, almost sickly. Like, I don't like mead. It's hard to drink. Mead moon for late May, early June is perfect because that's when the beer gardens are probably at their busiest. Right. Because it's the, the sun is out, it's actually warm to sit outside in the afternoon, and that's when the beer gardens are flooded. Not this year because everything's closed because of coronavirus, but I think it's an appropriate... I think it's more appropriate than strawberry moon. I wouldn't be at all surprised if the beer gardens are full this year. Jimmy Weatherspoon, or whatever he's called, the guy that runs Weatherspoons, he, uh... Tim Martin. Yeah, that was it. He's a Brexiteer and mates with Boris, so, uh... Yeah, everyone, you can all drink at Weatherspoons. Well, give it, give it another week. I think Boris can only give out so, so many favours in, in a week. So, yeah, as is tradition, let's go through the sewer names for the moons. That's the the hangover mythology that we've created for the moons with Hard Time Moon, Long Day Moon, and then Saw Eye Moon. And then it went Frog Moon. Last month was Idle Moon. This month is the Full Leaf Moon. Not sure how that will tie in. No, I think they, they were obviously so drunk in the first three months they lost the plot. <laughs> And just well, looked around, what have we got? Full leaves, yep, that'll do. Well, that ties in well with Idle Moon. They've work, lost their work ethic, and they're just like, ah, oh, I can't be bothered with this naming anymore. And, you know, it's hot outside, you, you don't want to exercise, you don't want to think, you don't want to work, you just want to, like, laze about. So, yeah, I, I get it, I get it. And so, uh, we're going to end this episode on... And the next moon is, uh, where we try to talk about every moon of the solar system, from our moon all the way through to the outer moons of the solar system. And the way it'll work is you start with the planet and then you go from the innermost moons to outermost. So with Mars, for example, you do Phobos because that's the innermost moon and then Deimos. We're now onto Jupiter where we've covered three moons so far, Metis, Adrasteia and Amalthea. And now we're going to talk about the last of the inner moons, which is Thebe. Just a quick one. So those moons we talked about earlier, like Io and that, yep. where do they fit in Jupiter? So they are the next set of moons we're going to talk about. Those are the Galilean moons. Oh, okay. Right. So you have four inner moons, which are all prograde and all orbits in the same direction as Jupiter. So those are prograde. And after that, you have the four Galilean moons. And these are significant because the, the Galilean moons were the first four moons to be discovered after our own moon. Okay. But we'll talk about that when it's their turn. Yeah, I know how they started. <laughs> yes, now you do. Uh, today, it's Thebe's time to shine. Not to be confused with Phoebe, which is a moon of Saturn. No, this one is Thebe, T-H-E-B-E. And Thebe is the outermost of the inner moons of Jupiter. While the others had something to talk about, like, for example, Metis, fastest moon, Amalthea, biggest of the inner moons, Thebe 
probably doesn't have that much to talk about other than the fact its surface is almost completely covered by one huge crater and i think i haven't done any maths on this and this is just purely from me looking at it but the crater on phoebe called the zethus crater is so big that it takes up most of the surface, and I'm going to say the ratio between the crater to moon is the largest of any other moons. And when I finally come to make a video about Phoebe, I'll do some proper num number crunching on that and do some more digging through other moons of the solar system. But I reckon that's the thing to talk about for Phoebe, that it's got the largest, largest or most similar crater to moon ratio. What would you call it? If something was like two to one as opposed to a thousand to one, yeah, it's the, it's the largest crater-to-moon surface ratio, or largest crater-to-non-crater ratio of the moon surface. Is this the one that you sort of said was the Death Star? No, that's Mimas. Mimas uh, looks like a Death Star because of the huge Herschel crater on it, but the size of the crater which still only takes up probably about, about a quarter of the size of the planet, at the height of the planet, whereas... The Zethus crater has a diameter of 40 kilometers, whereas Phoebe is has diameters of 98 to 84, so it's roughly half the surface. While the other inner moons are following quite a stringent path, they have very limited eccentricity, meaning their orbits are pretty circular, and they're all perfectly horizontal with... Uh, the orbit of Jupiter, so you've got like an orbital plane. Earth's moon, for example, is five degrees above the equator, whereas all the inner moons of Jupiter, they're all like perfectly on the equator, except for Phoebe, which is one degree above. And the reason for this is because of the formation of Io pulling it back. So the gravity of Io is pulling on Phoebe and actually disturbing its orbit. Okay. <laughs> well, well <laughs> I, I find that interesting. Yeah, no, I was... Uh, how... Uh... So I'm also trying to work out how was it in the middle? Is I sorry? Is Io on the plane? What the the inclination of Io? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Io is basically at Jupiter's equator. It's a point zero five. So how does a planet that's on the same plane pull and create an inclination? So, the theory for this is. In the past, several mean motion resonances with Io would pass through Phoebe's orbit as Io gradually receded away from Jupiter, and these excited Phoebe's orbit. However, that was looking at the old theory. So the new one that we talked about before talks about Io being formed and then migrating inwards. So either way, Io will have formed and then moved, whereas Thebe, given how close it is to Jupiter, probably formed before it, because mm. it's outside of the Roche limit, so it would have been around for a lot longer than the other inner moons, which could well have uh, formed a bit further out and then degraded in. You know, I'll just stop you there. You lost me at mean motion resonance. <laughs> yes, uh, <laughs> I was, I was <laughs> going to go back to that. Yeah, that, that sounds mean, or you know, it's like <laughs> Io shouting mean things or something. So, clicking on the article for mean motion resonance, it just takes me to orbital resonance, and then it just shows me the animation of Io, Europa, and Ganymede. You know, the, oh, for every 
four of Io, it's one of Ganymede. So I think it's just a case of their orbits happen to line up. And when you get like the moons aligned, they'll have a greater gravitational pull because they're all, you have all this mass in the same direction from Thebe. So it's all pulling on it. Uh, that's why Io is so geologically active because you have all these moons on one side and then you've got Jupiter on the other. And it's like pulling and contracting the surface and causing it to heat up. But we'll talk about Io when it's Io's time to shine. We're talking about Thebe. So like the other inner moons, Thebe was discovered through images taken by Voyager 1, but it wasn't actually taken by directly observing it. They noticed shadows on Jupiter's surface. They figured out what is causing these shadows and then inferred from that, oh, it's not the other moons that we've discovered, which were Metis and Adrastea. This is a new one. And then they directly observed it in other images taken later on, but it was first discovered by looking at the shadow on the surface. Mm, that's impressive. Yeah, it is impressive. And I looked at some of the raw images of Voyager and I couldn't make it out at all no I, I i i've absolutely no idea what i'm looking for so the, this imaging team are spectacular at discovering these things yeah i'm looking at the pre-prepared pictures and i can i can just about work it out oh those were taken by galileo yeah in the 1990s the ones of thebe you're basically looking at jupiter's surface and there's like five in a row and i downloaded them and made like a quick animation for myself to see if i could spot it couldn't couldn't work it out at all so i'm gonna to have to actually email the guy and ask him can you let me know which image it is please <laughs> uh, it's like where's wally but more scientific i guess a little bit so how are you going to remember phoebe um i will mem remember it as it's got the biggest crater to non-crater ratio and without looking at the notes can you remember the name of the crater i was going to say that it should be called the thebe crater uh to be honest just to keep it simple but no <laughs> they, it, they is, called... it is related to thebe because it's called the zethus crater and in the mythology thebe being i think uh, a water nymph uh, Phoebe was a, a nymph in Greek mythology, and Zethus was the husband of Phoebe. So if you know your Greek mythology, that's a, that's a very obvious connection. <laughs> yeah, if you want to learn moons, go and learn another subject, and then come back. <laughs> that's, that's what you say. So, uh, yeah, that's Phoebe. It's not the... Not the most exciting of the innermost moons. I would say that would be either Metis or Adrastea, but it's still an interesting one nonetheless because it has the largest crater to non-crater ratio of, of the surface. And also the fact that it was discovered by looking at the shadows on the planet. Uh, I think that's quite incredible as well. Yeah, that's good. Just on that, um, you said that it's not the most interesting. So just to follow up, you've you done a video recently about your ranking of moons and uh, or a response video of Dyer. Uh, oh, yeah. Tell you what, let's end this segment now and do the doo Yeah. And then we'll talk about that in a bit. So we're going to go now talk about Dyer. So as you were saying... So yes, I saw your response video that Dyer isn't the worst moon in the solar system or the, the least interesting. So yeah, that was based on the discussion we had in the last podcast about the Popular Mechanics article where they ranked all the moons in the solar system and Dyer came in dead last. So I made a video defending Dyer and saying, well, actually it shouldn't be in last place because you've ranked all these moons above it that are equally as dull 
and actually dyer isn't as dull as you make it out to be and i make all these other cases in the video as well yeah no it was a good video actually i did like the point as well that yeah these moons that we know just their eccentricity rough size and broadly where they are that that is literally all we know about them they should surely be in, in last place but also they're not inherently uninteresting well they're uninteresting on their own but if you add them into a group they could be interesting because the group would give you an idea about something like how they formed or yeah exactly uh, yeah so I, I did like that point that a little ray of hope for all of us so even if we are uninteresting in ourselves if we get into a group of uninteresting people we might be interesting oh that's how comic sans script started <laughs> never heard of them <laughs> Uh, comic Sanskrit being the improv group that I used to be in and that Rick formed. Yeah, oh, those were the days, eh? When we were funny, remember that? Oh, yeah. All three scenes I was in and made an actual honest-to-God joke as opposed to a Simpsons reference. Yeah, that, that was the first year, I think. Stop giving bloody Simpsons references. But based on that training, I'm now able to get up on stage and do a show. And something that we have been toying about with is maybe doing live shows in Edinburgh as part of the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Because there's a few audience games we can do with this. And I reckon we could do a decent half an hour show where, uh, well, every episode that week would be different. A nice little concise half an hour show. Maybe talk about a different moon, maybe do a different game. I reckon there's something there. And it's something that we've been toying with for a while. So if that's something that you would like to see, please leave a comment uh, like on the YouTube video or on the SoundCloud page or if you're listening to this on a streaming service then just tweet the lunatic channel at I am a lunatic lunatic spelled L-U-N-A-R-T-I-C there'll be links to in the show description as well but yeah tweeters if you would like to see the show maybe in a live format yeah I'd like to <laughs> yeah, I, I'd like to too. Even if we're just playing to just us. two random. Well, it would just be like the uh, the pilot shows. They went well. Oh Crater, yeah, yes they <laughs> did. or potato. Guess the moon by the silhouette. That went well. No, you're giving away our show. <laughs> Well, I think we should, you know, yeah, if you're going to play Guess the Moon by the Silhouette, you really have to give people warning that you're going to play that, because <laughs> 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 that feature f fell flat on its face. That was funny. I think I think it's funny. That's part of the joke. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Anyways, you'll, you'll experience the laughs live, hopefully, if we can get this together. So we're going to stop recording this episode now. Um, we're going to record part of the next episode which is going to be talking about Captain Scarlet uh, since we're all still in lockdown got nothing much to do but that one will be edited and released probably later than this one so if you're still listening at this point there is another episode coming in the next two weeks but it'll be probably very trimmed down and only featuring one feature which in this case will be probably talking about Captain Scarlet uh, so see you next time see you bye Honest Andy's Discount Moon Show! I'm sure that should be a card in the board game as well. What, making pee on the moon? Or take one urine and one regolith. You can swap it for some lunacrete and some water. Oh, that's going to have to be an expansion pack. At the moment, I just thought it was getting to the moon, not building a yeah. colony. Oh, okay, we'll put that on the expansion. <laughs> expansion called so you've had your heart attack now go and pee on some moon rock <laughs>